Welcome to everybody. I'm Andrew Dillnot. Um, it's a real, real delight to welcome everybody here today for this session about uh, Donovan, the Oxford School, and all other related issues. Um, the the proximate cause of this actually. Reminds me that I don't think I've yet turned off my mobile phone. Um, the proximate cause of today was the very sad uh, occasion of uh, Bill McCarthy dying almost exactly three years ago. Uh, Bill, who had been a huge figure in the college's life, a huge figure in, in the nation's life, and in the life of, of a large academic discipline, which, like the best of academic disciplines, crossed over from from the purely academic into genuine engagement with the real activities of the nation. Now, Bill and his family were, were adamant there shouldn't be a memorial event. Uh, so this is not a memorial event. Although the fact that there wasn't a memorial event, couldn't be a memorial event, was something that we in the, in the college and I think in the wider Oxford community felt uncomfortable about because this was somebody who had meant so much to so many people we wanted to be able somehow to... Uh, reflect that. So, although this isn't a memorial event, it is a celebration. Uh, it's a celebration of, of his work, of the work of the group of which he was a part, but it's also, I, I think it will have the character of an exhortation, because it would be possible, although wrong, to think that this area of work had slipped away, was no longer being done and was no longer important. That's surely something that McCarthy himself <coughs> wouldn't have believed, wouldn't have agreed with, and it's not something I hope that we will believe or agree with by the time we get to the end of the day. So although much of today is going to be looking backwards and analysing what happened in the past, a part of today is very explicitly going to be looking forward. Now, as I said, Bill McCarthy was crucial for Nuffield. He was crucial for Nuffield because he so exemplified much of what the college seeks to stand for. There's a, to some extent, scurrilous and inaccurate tale that when Lord Nuffield William Morris set the college up, what he, what he wanted was a college of engineering and accountancy, and he desperately ha it was very hard to persuade him otherwise. Well, that story is roughly half true. It is true that his initial thought was a college that would study engineering and accountancy, and all kinds of jokes can be told about how the university explained to him that wasn't really quite what we wanted. But it took only 24 hours, and not an enormous struggle, to persuade William Morris that it wasn't uh, accountancy and engineering, but social science that we really needed to study. But crucially, social science in a practical sense. So if you, if you go back to Lord Nuffield's letter describing what it is that he wants the college to do. He's very clear that it is uh, to be a place where the students of contemporary social, political and economic problems will do work that is of practical consequence to the, I think he says practical men, but of practical consequence to those whose task it was to be running the country. What Nuffield was after was people doing work that wasn't purely work that was academic, but work that was academic but about, about these practical problems that would help those who were faced with the practical challenges. And in that, McCarthy was an extraordinary example, as were his colleagues about whom we'll hear. Somebody of extremely 
sophisticated analytical and theoretical skill, but applying those analytical, those academic gifts, those academic gifts which we celebrate and never want to see run down, but applying them to matters of genuine practical difficulty and consequence. So an astonishing volume of academic output, but an astonishing volume of output that had real engagement and impact in the world. And that is, I think, what William Morris, Lord Nuffield, had in his mind when he set this place up. So, so we want to celebrate that, backward-looking but also forward-looking. Now, I'm a, I'm a kind of statistician and an economist, and my, my closest engagement with much of this material was sitting in smoke-filled tutorials with Ken Mayhew, um, who will mean something to some of you. Ken, who used to, we would sit for two and a half hours through which Ken would smoke most of a packet of cigarettes, and we'd talk about that great green book and its contents. This was in the late 1970s. So this isn't an area where I could claim professional expertise. But numbers, numbers will always shed some light. So, so earlier, uh, I, I went and just dug out a few numbers. Um, um, this, um, now I'm struggling to get them. <coughs> Ah, here we are, here we are. So, uh, I thought, what, you know, what's, the obvious, what's the obvious set of numbers to go away and look at to see what's happened in some of these areas? And the obvious thing to go is look at annual days lost. Uh, I, I, I'm particularly keen on this chart because this is a chart that is often shown uh, currently to show that things are getting terribly bad, that there's an enormous... But it's not shown quite like this. It's shown starting here. <laughs> and then from here on, some of these bits look like you know, a return to enormously high levels of industrial strife. Um, well, when the giants were, 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 were young and in the land, back here, you know, we really were talking about some big numbers, uh, because these, you, you need to add thousands, so 30 million at the peak, 30 million days lost at the peak in the early 1980s. So, so well, that, that, you could look at a chart like that and you think, well, the world really has changed in this, in this field, that we've moved from a period in the uh, early post-war period and then through the 60s and 70s where industrial strife seemed on this measure to be very, very dramatic to a world now where industrial strife, shown in this way, seems to be much, much smaller. And that's a story that some might like to tell. Another, another, I think, crucial component for the, the statistical economist of, of much of this debate was inflation. Um, this is the RPI, which is not a good measure of inflation, but, but it's the only measure of inflation we have going back before the 1990s, so we'll use it. In that period when, uh, when McCarthy and the others were in their pomp was a period of extraordinarily rapid and volatile inflation, and that's bound to lead to... Uh, many of the sorts of concerns that I had then. And again, since the early 1990s, you might look at that and say, well, we don't need to worry about that anymore. But I think it would be terribly foolish on the basis of those two and a number of other <coughs> ways of saying the problem has gone away, the issues have gone away, to fall into that trap. 
Here's another, I mean, a very ugly aggregate summary measure of things, but you know, unemployment has not gone away. Uh, comparable data here, only going back to the 1970s, but striking, actually, the last recession, unemployment did not rise as far as it did in the last two, but unemployment, although it's come down, <coughs> is now well above the levels that we saw in the 1960s. Unemployment now at a rate that certainly Beveridge would have thought was completely unacceptable. Of course, this aggregate measure masks variations across regions and across different categories of labour. So uh, the notion that we have no problems left there, certainly not true. And then where are we, where are we with trades unions? Um, so I was almost tempted, but I don't have time, I was almost tempted to ask the multiple choice question, what's the level of trades union membership? in the UK now. Uh, if you play that game with most groups, I don't know whether it would be true, if you play that game with most groups now, you get a massive underestimate. There's a public perception that the trades union movement has disappeared altogether. Well, it's true that trades union membership has come down substantially uh, from its peak there at a bit more than 13 million, but it's not disappeared. There is still a significant level of trades union membership and thinking about how that trades union membership uh, works, how it should engage and be engaged with seems crucial. But these, I mean, these are all aggregate things. There are many other things that we need to think about for the future that are strongly related to some of the questions that McCarthy and his colleagues were concerned about. The massive growth in interest in zero hours contracts. We don't actually know whether there are significantly more zero-hours contracts because although we're now collecting some data that asks people about them uh, and it looks as though more people, certainly more people think they're on zero-hours contracts, some of that appears to be because the notion of a zero-hours contract is now widely discussed. Honestly, I think we just don't know. We, we've got a much better handle on the level of zero-hours contracts now than we did have, but we don't have a real sense of what's been happening to the numbers of them over time, nor do we yet, I think, have enough of an understanding of what kind of thing a zero-hours contract always will be, whether the notion zero-hours contract is even terribly helpful or whether we need to start categorising them much more finely and looking in much more detail at what kind of contract is underway. But this is an area of huge significance. Even if we don't know what's happened to the numbers, we know that the levels are high and potentially very, very significant. The minimum wage. This young man called Bain sitting in front of us um, who had some involvement with this some decades ago and many others here who had an involvement over a long, long time. I suspect that most of us take us back 25 years and imagine we could have been having the debate we've just been having where a Conservative government has proposed a very significant real increase in the minimum wage to levels in real terms significantly above those that the Low Pay Commission was responsible for decade or two ago would have seemed very surprising. This is stuff that we need to take very, very seriously. With the, the analysis of it is crucial. The retirement age. Uh, thinking back to the early part of the uh, McCarthy et al period, the notion that we would have been expecting and possibly thinking that people wanted to work on well beyond the 60-65 range to, to a point where the notion of, of an end to the working age has become much more complicated. Um, these are going to be crucial debates. And then the, all of the questions surrounding globalization, the balance of power between employer and employee, 
notions of jurisdiction across multiple nations. There, there is a huge amount still to be done. So, so yes, uh, the backward-looking, the analysis of what happened is part of our celebration. But I'm pretty sure that while Bill and his colleagues would have been delighted to have us looking back at what they were doing, one of the reasons that would have been strongest for them for doing that would be to look forward, to ask, well, what are the questions that we need to address now and five years from now and 10 years from now? So that's enough from me. It's wonderful to have everybody here at Nuffield. I'm especially grateful to Peter Ackers, who has done almost all of the work to get this conference going. I'm grateful to all of the speakers. I'm grateful to, to Lucy and her colleagues from History and Policy who have done much of the organization, and to my own colleagues at Nuffield, Caroline Kakura and Monica Esposito, who have, who have looked after us already and will do for the rest of the day. It, it, it's really exciting to have you all here. And let me pass now to Peter, who does know what he's on about. Thank you.